Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at SalemAlliance.org. Today we're continuing our series called Choices, Decisions That Shape the Soul. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. Good morning, church. Um, Sorry that I'm underdressed. But let's take a minute and talk about mercy as it comes to voting on Texas. Because I really feel like this is a subject we need to land on today since grace is a major theme of the message. Wouldn't it be better if you all wrote in, I'd rather see Steve Fowler in a tux from Dumb and Dumber than Brian Candelo, right? Isn't that what we're thinking? I trust you to do the right thing. Have you ever hurt yourself and then tried to hide it because the way that you hurt yourself wasn't exactly smart? Right? When you're walking and you think the sliding glass door is open, but it's not, and you're like, and you hit your head on it, and then you play it off like everything's great. Or, or when maybe you're running and competing and going a little too hard for your age, and you hurt yourself, and then you're like, no, I'm good, and then the next six months is rehab, but you're trying to not let everybody know that that's what happened. When I was young, a friend of mine on our street had one of the really cool bikes that all the cool kids had, one of these banana seat bikes. Now, as I recall, his was far more manly than this one. But anybody in here have one of those banana seat bikes? Wow, you guys are so much cooler than I am. (laughs) Banana seat bikes for children are basically mass transportation because you can get a lot of kids on a banana seat bike. And that's pretty much how I remember them. And I can remember one day in particular when we were headed somewhere, I think we were going to the park, and we had a kid up front sitting on the handlebars facing forward. And then the kid whose bike it was, he was the one pedaling, standing up, and then two or three of us sitting on the seat. And I can remember sitting in the very back, and as we were going and weaving down the street to try and keep forward momentum, my legs were kind of moving in and out like this. Well, at a certain point, my right leg swung in and just got jammed up in the spokes. And we went from forward momentum to dead stop. And it was bad. And I can remember thinking two things almost immediately. The first one was, ow because it really hurt. It really just tore all the skin off my ankle. It was just kind of nasty, and my shoe was getting all squishy. And, uh, and then the second thing was, I can't tell mom. My second thought was like, I, I have to hide this from mom. She can't know, or she won't let us do this. She'll think it's a bad idea to have eight kids on a bike. So now my medical knowledge consisted of phrases like walk it off. You know, that's the first thing you try. Walk it off. Okay, I'm walking it off. Or rub some dirt on it. That's a common kid thing. I knew enough not to rub dirt on it, people. No dirt on it. But I had to take care of it. So I sneak into the house. And what's, you know, as you're a kid and you're looking for some type of bandage, but you can't get a real one because that'll tip everybody off. So a tube sock, right? Take a tube sock and you tie a tube sock around there really tight. Now, you can't walk around with a tube sock tied around your ankle, so you have to put another sock over it, but that doesn't work, so you have to wear jeans in the middle of the summer. So here I am walking around the house. 
you know, hiding this. And as a kid, your mind goes to these wonderful places. Like, yeah, I'll probably lose the foot. <laughs> but I can't tell mom. <laughs> she cannot find out. Because it's counterintuitive for us to tell other people about when we hurt ourselves or about when we do things like that. You know, we had this idea. If I tell them, they will think that I'm an idiot. <laughs> Guess what they already know? <laughs> My family knew. And so I walked around in this place of caught between cover-up and confession. I was trying to cover it up, and it wasn't healing at all. I mean, eventually, I had to peel the crusty sock off of my ankle, which means the bleeding started again, right? So concealing it wasn't doing any good, and, and mom knows everything in the house anyway. So it's not like you can hide anything from mom. But have you ever been in that position, caught between cover-up and confession? And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about David and how David did something absolutely awful, and he tried to cover it up, cover it up, instead of confessing it right away. So we're continuing on in our series, Choices, where we're looking at First and Second Samuel, and today we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 11. So if you want to turn there, it's on page 502 in the Pew Bible there. And it's one of the best-known passages in the life of David. If you know anything at all about King David, you know that he fought the giant Goliath, but you also probably know that there was an incident with a woman named Bathsheba. And both of these circumstances showed the heart of David. And as awesome as the Goliath story is, the Bathsheba story is equally as awful. And I think we wrestle with this story because we know that it says in 1 Samuel 13, and even in Acts chapter 13, that David was a man after God's own heart. The scripture tells us that David was a man after God's heart. And so that's kind of the dichotomy that's David. How can David be a man after God's own heart? And yet we've got the story of Bathsheba in scriptures. Psalm chapter 40, David writes this, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. And David wrote it and he meant it. God, I want to follow your commandments. I want to do what you want me to. And yet in today's story, we find David breaking basically the latter half of the 10 commandments in one event. And so how do we reconcile those two things? And maybe even as we look at this story, it helps us to kind of connect with David a little bit because maybe we're that way. God, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to follow your commandments and yet I find myself at certain times breaking them. And what do I do with that? So we're gonna look at this story today. Now there's a lot of lessons that you could glean out of this story and there have been whole books written just about this passage. And so there'll be little things all along the way. But as we progress through this story, I want us to understand about the power of sin, how sin is powerful, it affects us all, about what it means to confess, and about the wonderful grace of God. So let's jump into this story, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go up to war, David sent Joab, his nephew, commander of the army, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And then if you read there at the end, it says, however, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So it's spring. 
It's time for war. Nobody wants to fight in the winter. It's cold outside. That's time for hot chocolate and skiing and sleigh rides. But when, when spring comes, right, when the flowers come up, that's when we get the army together and we go plunder the other nations. That's what kings did. That's what this tells us. And yet David stays in Jerusalem. David doesn't have to prove himself anymore. The songs have been written about him. He has proved himself in battle. And there are no major battles going on at this point. And so this story of David, this awful incident begins because David is bored and he's not where he's supposed to be. And how many things happen in our lives when we're bored and we're not where we're supposed to be? Verse two, it says, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. David gets up from his afternoon nap, goes over to the edge of the palace roof there, and he looks out over everything, and what does he see? Now, it's, it's not the first look that gets us into trouble. We can't control the images that come before us, and especially in our media-saturated society, we don't control oftentimes the images that come before us, but we do control what we do with them. You see, David's wasn't, he wasn't just like, oh yes, the royal gardens, and I can't believe they're putting another Starbucks in, and oh, there's a woman taking a bath, and oh, look, the market is busy today, right? The word literally means, as he looked out, it literally means he gazed with interest. As he's coming around and as he's looking, he stops and he stares. See, it's, it's what we do after that initial look that begins the trouble because David could have come across and he could have seen that and he could have looked away and we wouldn't have this story in scripture. But he gazed with interest and so verse three says, he sent someone to find out who she was and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. When his messengers came back, they said, David, that's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. Don't look at her that way. And, and it's not just someone's daughter and someone's wife. Who is it? You see, when David was in the wilderness, people rallied to his side. People rallied to defend him as he was fleeing for his life. And of those men arose this group of valiant men called the mighty men. And so 2 Samuel chapter 23 tells us that Bathsheba's father and Uriah were both mighty men. David, these are the guys that protected you in the wilderness. Here's the names. That's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. And I want so much for verse four of this chapter to be, and David walked away. And David came to his senses, and David walked to the other side of the roof. But verse four tells us that David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Verse five says, later when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. I feel like I'm not prepared for this kind of behavior from David. And, and maybe we've read the story so much that, yeah, we knew that this was coming, and so it's lost a little bit of its shock value. But think about this. This was, this was 
an outrageous act for him to do. David that we've been tracking with, David that's a man after God's own heart, David that God said, I will establish your kingdom, David that looked to God for advice and counsel and wrote the Psalms and defeated Goliath, does this? I mean, as I read that, and imagine it's your first time reading it or your first time hearing the story, we would be outraged. I'd be like, I I do not support his kingship any longer. I'm unfriending him. And I will begin writing nasty posts about him. And he can forget about his Christmas card. No, really, this is devastating news. And David hasn't sunk as low as he's going to sink yet. Because he's going to begin to try and cover this up. And it's going to lead him deeper. You see, he calls Uriah back from the battle so that he can get an update. And he brings him to the palace. And he serves him dinner. And he gives him a gift. And he says, hey, why don't you uh, maybe go home and... Hang out with your wife and spend the night there and see what happens. And, you know, (laughs) right? But Uriah doesn't. He spends the night with the palace guard. And the next day when David hears about it, he's, he's shocked because he really, he kind of expects Uriah to be a little bit more like him, kind of selfish at this moment and pleasure seeking. And since night one didn't work, he brings Uriah back for dinner again. And this time he has a lot of alcohol at dinner, and he gets him drunk so that he'll go home. And that doesn't work either. Uriah spends the night with the palace guard again. And so David has to dig deeper. Verse 14 says, the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. David sends Uriah with his own death sentence. He forces Joab to adopt a military strategy that he wouldn't otherwise adopt. And Uriah dies, and several other soldiers die as well. And when David receives the news, his reply to the news is so cliched, it's so callous. He, he just has this, well, yeah, that happens in battle sometimes. People die. Everything happens for a reason. And you're like, yeah, but the reason is you made a terrible decision, David. And at this point, David is so detached. He's operating from this position of power. He's, he's playing with other people's lives as if he's some type of God so that he can cover up his own sin. Verse 27, it says, the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And maybe as shocked as we are to find out that David is doing these awful things, the reality is it isn't too hard to find ourselves in this story. And maybe it's not those awful things that David did But the root of those things can be found in our lives. We take control, we cover up, we justify our actions, we go down the paths of sin. Guys, sin is powerful. We wanna distance ourselves from those kind of things. We we don't think we're capable of those awful things, but the truth is the potential to do awful things is inside of us. 
the seeds of those sins can grow inside of us. It's called sin nature. Galatians 5.17 says, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. If you give your life to Christ, the spirit of God comes and lives within you and it starts to give you that new nature and reshape you, but you still have this old sin nature that you've been living with your entire life. And so those two, they battle back and forth oftentimes and you feel that. You know there are times where you're like, man, I would really love to do this good or man, I really wanna punch that person. And you have that internal struggle. You see, if we read a story like David's and we believe that we are incapable of doing such things, I believe that takes us one step closer to being capable of doing such things. Because we have the seeds of sin in our lives. I mean, think about the things that you let hang around in your life that aren't that bad. Self-pity, resentment, self-righteousness, entitlement, pride or hurt pride, envy, jealousy, self-centeredness. We tolerate these things in our lives because we don't think that they are that bad. But let me tell you, it's easier to crush the acorn than it is to uproot the oak. It's easier to get rid of it when it's the seed. Can you imagine David coming to the edge of the roof and as he looks out and he gazes with interest and before that seed of lust can take root in his life, he just squashes it and he turns and walks away. It's easier to do that than all of the cover-up that he's doing. It's easier to kill the seed than it is to uproot the tree. Because sin will take root in our lives and grow up and bear the wrong kinds of fruit. British theologian John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Guys, sin is powerful. And we are all susceptible to it. And we all battle with it. And we all need to deal with it. Sin is killing David at this point in the story. He's free falling out of control. He needs someone to come to him and give him this wake up call. My wife has two sisters, and every summer, her dad thought it would be a great idea if he would take the three girls into northern Canada for two weeks of outback camping, which sounds awful. But my wife's tougher than I am, so she can do that thing. It just doesn't sound like vacation to me. But she tells a story at one point as they are canoeing down this river, and she's up front, and her little sister is behind her, and her dad's in the back. All of a sudden, she sees a spider And so she jumps up in the canoe and screams that there's a spider and starts trying to get away from the spider. Now, we know how sturdy canoes are, right? So the whole canoe is going back and forth. And dad's in the back of the canoe saying, please sit down. Can you sit down? Uh, We don't want to swim right now. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. And he can't get her attention. And so he takes the canoe paddle and he whacks her on the top of the head. (laughs) Right? He, he He needs to get her attention. Because her actions are going to take the rest of them down. Now, it's not child abuse. (laughs) And the bonus is my wife's not afraid of spiders to this day. So it was kind of a great, great thing that happened right there. No, it was stop what you're doing. You're going to sink us all. 
And, and David, at this point of the story, he needs someone to come along with a canoe paddle and hit him over the head. That's what he needs, forcefully. And that's what we see is going to happen. Nathan the prophet is going to come to David and he's going to crack him on the head. He's going to get his attention. And Nathan comes with this story that is just brilliant, honestly. It's such a brilliant way that he comes to David because he might be coming to David fearful. I mean, what's David done to the people who have tr- know about this story? He's eliminated them. And so Nathan comes, and he brings this story to David because David was not only king, but he would have been judge as well. So he brings a story to David to judge the outcome of. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup, which is odd, but you get the picture of where he's going here. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As sure as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. David hears this story and he erupts. He is just incensed about this. And if you're guilty in one area of your life, oftentimes it makes you unusually upright in other areas of your life. And so David just erupts in anger. This man deserves death, which is not Mosaic law. Mosaic law is what he continues on with. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole. That was what the law required. Someone paid four times back. But David just erupts and he says, that man deserves to die. And then this is where the brilliance of Nathan's story comes in. Nathan looks at him in verse seven. He says, you are that man. I mean, can you imagine David sitting there? Can you imagine the silence? Can you imagine the weight of everything that David's done and covered up and tried to hide crashing down on him in this moment? You are that man. The focus was put on him. And honestly, that's kind of the focus of the gospel is I am that man. You are that man. You see, the gospel is all about me before it's about other people. It's easy to get worked up about someone else's sin. It's easy to stand at a distance and point the finger of blame. It's easy to accuse. It's easy to sit back and feel superior to them. And I'll be honest with you, I am far better at dealing with other people's sin than I am about dealing with my own sin. But David is coming to this point where he is going to have to respond to his own sin the same way that we need to respond to our own sin. So what's he gonna do? 2 Samuel 12, 13, David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is it. That's a first big, huge step. He confessed it. See, that's what we need to do. We need to admit when we're wrong. We need to take responsibility for our actions. And so David says, I have sinned against God. And he's right in saying that. You see, when the nation of Israel came out from slavery out of Egypt, They had lived 400 years under the rule of someone else, and so God gave them an instruction manual for being holy. It's called Leviticus and Numbers, and in Numbers chapter five, it says, when you offend someone else, you sin against God. 
when you break this relationship, you're breaking this relationship, these commandments. And so you go to God and you confess. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful, he's just, he will forgive us and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we go to God and we confess our sin, God forgives us. He doesn't hold that sin against us any longer. He removes the punishment for that sin. The punishment of that sin is gone. And that's the first part of confession. You see, oftentimes confession goes further than that. I feel like we're taught that confession is at night, before you get into bed, you kneel by your bed, or when you're in bed, just before you nod off to sleep, you go, God, thanks for today. Thanks for all the stuff that good that you did for me. I'm sorry for all the things that I messed up. Please forgive me. And then you fall asleep. And somewhere along the line, confession became about us. It became about making us feel better, about relieving our conscience, as if confession is some type of spiritual Tylenol that kind of knocks the edge off the pain but doesn't really get to the root of the problem. It doesn't really heal. It doesn't really restore. And I believe that if, if we've been in the church for a long period of time, we might have fallen into that pattern where confession is just meaningless and rote. You know, Sins that we only confess to God, we tend to repeat. Now, I don't want to lose you on that statement because I think it sounds funny, but I think we can get into that pattern. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't forgive us, but we can get into this pattern of like, okay, God, I'm sorry. And then don't you find yourself continuing to do those same things? That's why scripture says in James chapter five, also confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That there's a power in speaking your sins to someone else, someone else that you trust. And this is where I would say, have a Nathan in your life. This is one of those lessons from this passage. You need a Nathan. You need to be a Nathan and you need a Nathan. You need someone that has a hunting license for your stuff that can come to you that you can share your stuff with and spill. And I'm not talking about like just thoughts that you've had that are bad about someone. Like if I'm like, oh, that's Steve Fowler. He's such a jerk. And then I go up to Steve and I'm like, Steve, I'm sorry for thinking you're a jerk. And he's like, well, I didn't know there was anything bad. Uh, we don't alleviate our own burdens by adding a burden to someone else. I'm not saying that. But a trusted friend that you can confess what's going on, that's a big part of what confession is. You see, secret sins are like splinters. The longer they stay in, the worse they get, and you have to get them out for healing. But I think we're afraid of confession. I think we're afraid of confession sometimes to God and we're definitely afraid of confession to other people because we're afraid of what they're going to think. We fear the consequences of confession more than we fear the consequences of concealment. But the reality is the consequences of concealment are far worse than the consequences of confession. You see, secrets grow and they get stronger and they get darker and they begin to impact all of our relationships and you carry secrets with you from stage to stage and season to season of your life and they can get worse and worse and worse. Confession affects a small group of people for a short period of time and concealment 
affects you over a lifetime and all of your relationships. And we need to be better at true confession because it involves asking God for forgiveness and sharing with someone else. And it also involves repentance and restitution when that happens. Second Corinthians 7 says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. See, repentance is, is this inner change. It's a, a change of direction. If I was going this way, repentance is I want to walk away from sin and towards God. And that comes through confession. And it also comes through restitution. If there are things that you've done wrong to other people, fix this relationship. But God wants you to fix this relationship as well. That's why when Zacchaeus says, I will pay back four times to everyone else, that's when Jesus says, salvation has come to your house. That's the kind of repentance God longs for. So when David finally comes to that place, what's God's response to David's confession? What's God's response then to our own confession? We find it in verse 13 of chapter 12. David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for this sin. God has forgiven you. God has removed the penalty that you deserve from this sin. Now, don't get me wrong. David is forgiven. There are still consequences to his actions, consequences that, quite honestly, I don't understand. I don't think are fair in my own thinking where his family will feel the ripple effects of this decision for generations. And I think, well, they didn't have anything to do with David's sin. How come they feel the effects? But sin has that. But David is forgiven. And so I don't want to get stuck there. I want to remind you that as big and as devastating as this sin was, God's grace is bigger and more devastating. I used to read this story and think it was all about the awful sin of David, but we need to read it and understand that it's all about the enormous grace of God. Eugene Peterson says it this way, David's sin, enormous as it was, was wildly outdone by God's grace. David's sin cannot, must not be minimized. And I love that. We're not trying to take anything away from what he did, but it's minuscule compared to God's salvation from it. It's always a mistake to concentrate attention on our sins. It's God's work on our sins that's the main event. You see, the hope of the Bible is not that we have to become morally superior to certain biblical characters. The hope of the Bible is that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins by his death on the cross, and we are offered forgiveness and grace. And it's because of what Jesus did. We have access to it. We're not earning it. That's why it's grace. Jesus came and he took punishment that should have been ours so that we could receive forgiveness when we go to him and confess. And the story of David is about the grace of God. Andy Stanley says it this way. While the details of our lives may overlap very little with David's, there is one thing we all have in common with him. We've all put God's grace to the test. We've broken his law We've been irresponsible with his blessing. We've confessed a sin only to turn right around and repeat it. It's those occasions when I begin to wonder, how many times? How many times can I expect God to forgive me for the same sin? 
All of us on our own have wondered, where does grace end and retribution begin? If David's story is any indication, grace has no end. The grace of God has no end. The worship team is gonna come back up and they're gonna lead us in a few closing songs and as they do, I want us to take this time to sit before God and to understand what confession is perhaps, but to definitely receive what grace is. And maybe as you sit here, you know right away that there is just some pit inside of you that you need to get right before God. And I want you to take that opportunity Maybe as you sit here, you know that the seed is starting to grow roots. You're at the edge of the roof and you're looking and you haven't quite acted upon it, but you're going down the wrong path. Now's the time to confess that to God. Maybe you don't have an idea. And maybe you pray as David prayed in the Psalms, search me, test me, try me, see if there's any offensive way in me, God. And so we take time to confess before God, but we also receive his forgiveness. We receive his grace and understand today that his grace is so much greater than anything that we could have done. Two Psalms are attributed to David after this incident. One is Psalm 51 and the other is Psalm 32. Psalm 32 says this, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. It doesn't say in perfection, it just says in honesty before God. David says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.